It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I made 50000 in the stock market today. I had twins. I went to the poor farm. I'm on Millionaire Acres. That's life. The game of life. The game of life. You will learn about life when you play the game of life. The Game of Life came out in 1960 and became a classic. It's now part of the permanent collection at the Smithsonian. So why now, after more than 60 years, are the heirs of the game's designer trying to reclaim the copyright to the game from Hasbro? And will they succeed? The answers to those questions could have massive repercussions, even affecting characters in the faraway Marvel Universe, like Iron Man, Spider-Man, and Doctor Strange. Here to help us sort through this really complex case is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. So, Terry, tell us about the story behind the game of life. So, June, in 1959, a toy designer by the name of Reuben Klamer, uh, was trying to pitch a new toy to the Milton Bradley Company in Massachusetts. Milton Bradley took a pass on the toy, but told them they were interested in coming up with something to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the company. So Mr. Klamer asked permission to look through their archives, and he found in the archives of the Milton Bradley Company the original, very first game invented by Mr. Milton Bradley in 1860, and it was called the Checkerboard Game of Life. And Klamer decided to do a modern version of that game, which would celebrate the 100th anniversary of the founding of Milton Bradley. And Milton Bradley just loved the idea. And so Mr. Klamer went back to Los Angeles, where he was based. And being more of an ideals guy, he had to come up with somebody who could actually develop the prototype. And he talked to a guy he knew by the name of Bill Markham, who had a small company designing toys and games. And he managed to develop a prototype of the Game of Life, modern version, in only six weeks. Klamer took it, pitched it to Milton Bradley. Again, they loved it as produced. They made some tweaks to it. And it was out on the store shelf by March of 1960, the 100th anniversary of Milton Bradley. Milton Bradley goes on to make a lot of money off of this game and ultimately is bought by the Hasbro company. So that's the background to the Game of Life, which is the creative work at the centerpiece of this lawsuit. 
So this game's been out for some 60 years. Why a lawsuit at this point? Well, this lawsuit arises out of a change that Congress made to the copyright laws back when it revised them in 1976. And up to that time, Copyright in the United States was governed by what was referred to as the 1909 Act, which is one of the reasons that the Congress felt they needed to revise it. And so the new law became the 1976 Act. In this 1976 Act, Congress put in a provision that had not previously ever existed. And what that provision, Section 304 of the 1976 Act, said was that a creator that had assigned away their copyright in a creative work would have a right to terminate that assignment for a brief period of time, 56 years after the copyright had originally been obtained. And and this was in response to numerous stories during hearings in Congress from um, inventors who didn't know what their rights were at the time they signed away copyrights, weren't yet popular, didn't understand their bargaining power. Plethora of stories from uh, creators about the problem with the copyright assignments led Congress to create this sort of option whereby they could get their copyrights back after a certain period of time. And that was a right that did not exist under the 1909 Act. And that is the source of the problem here because the copyright in the game of life is under the 1909 Act, not the 1976 Act. Adding to the complexity here is the rule called the instance and expense rule. So the 1909 Copyright Act did not contain any references whatsoever to how an independent contractor commissioned to create a work should be treated for copyright law purposes. The courts developed their own rules for addressing the problem of independent contractors commissioned to create a creative work. And the rule they developed came to be known as the instances and expense rule. Made a certain amount of sense for the period of time in which it was developed. It essentially said that if the idea for creative work is developed by an employer and they ask a non-employee, in other words, an independent contractor, to develop that idea into the actual work, and they pay for those development costs, then they have the copyright in the ultimate work that is created, not the independent contractor. And so that became the rule throughout the United States for any copyright that was the result of work by an independent contractor and resulted in a copyright under the 1909 Act. Is that why Markham lost his case at the district court and appeals court level? So keep in mind that There was no right under the 1909 Act to terminate an assignment of your copyright. That comes in 1976 under the 1976 Act. What the 1976 Act said, curiously, was we are going to extend, expressly extend, this right to terminate copyright assignments backwards in time to copyrights issued under the 1909 Act. A very curious choice, because obviously when people were negotiating that assignment under the 1909 Act, they were unaware that there might be a right to termination in the future and could not deal with it. Now, the Congress did create an exception in the 1976 Copyright Act for this Section 304 right of termination. The exception was that the right would not convey backwards in time to a work made for hire under the 1909 Act. Now, the problem with the way they drafted it was the 1909 Act does not contain the words 
work made for hire. And so the courts now have been left to interpret how do we deal with an independent contractor who developed a copyrighted work under the 1909 Act and is now seeking to terminate the assignment of that copyright to a third party. Do we apply current law as it's understood now? Or do we apply this instances and expense test, which was the law under the 1909 Act? And that's the conundrum that the lower courts are facing here. And Mr. Markham and the heirs to his estate lost in the lower courts because they believed that the law developed under the 1909 Copyright Act, in other words, the instances and expense rule, should apply to explain what a work made for hire is under the 1976 Act. And they found in the particular instance of this lawsuit that what Mr. Markham had done with respect to the game of life was a work made for hire because it had been commissioned at the instance of Milton Bradley and they had paid for the development expenses. Therefore, it was work made for hire and there was no right to determination. So he lost in the District Court of Rhode Island and again in the First Circuit on appeal. And now he's going to the Supreme Court and saying all those lower courts got it wrong. And there's a split in the circuits, although the courts that are most involved in copyright, the Second and the Ninth Circuits, have said the rule still stands for old works. That's correct. So the state of play now is that the Second Circuit, the Ninth Circuit, which you correctly identified as the most important courts of appeal at the federal level for copyright law, and the First Circuit, um, which covers um, New England, they've all said that we apply this uh, instance and expense rule from the 1909 Act to determine what a work made for hire is under Section 304 of the 1976 Act. However, the 11th Circuit down in uh, Florida, Georgia, southeastern part of the United States has said, no, no, that can't be right. The right to terminate, Section 304, is in the 1976 Act, and therefore we have to use the law of the 1976 Act to determine that right. Now, June, as you know, the Supreme Court of the United States is not required in the Constitution to take every single appeal that goes to it. It has discretionary powers in most cases, except for cases between two sovereign states. You know, Georgia and North Carolina suit each other. They have to take that. But all the rest of the cases, it's a discretionary jurisdiction. And so you file a petition for certiorari, which is what um, the Markham estate has done here, asking the court to review this case because it's important. And one of the things that the Supreme Court looks at to determine whether the case is worth taking on appeal is, is there a split in the circuit courts? Because the Supreme Court is of the view that if there's a split in the circuit courts, um, different law is being applied based on the portion of the country that you're in, and we have to fix that. There has to be a uniform law across the United States, so it doesn't matter which circuit you're in. And therefore, there's very strong reason here, because of that circuit split, to believe the Supreme Court's going to accept this case. And that has been confirmed recently by the fact that the Supreme Court asked in a very unusual manner for the Hasbro Company, which acquired all the rights and interests of Milton Bradley, asked a Hasbro Company who won below. They asked them to respond to this petition for certiorari, which is usually a signal that the Supreme Court is inclined to accept a case. And so my betting is that they're going to take this case and hear it sometime next fall. 
explain the significance of this case. It's not about just the game of life. It has such wide repercussions if the rules changed. Oh, this case has millions, if not billions of dollars at stake over and beyond the game of life. There's a lot of money at stake in this case. Game of Life is the second most popular board game of all time, selling something like 30 million copies worldwide. So there's a lot of money at stake in this case. But the the real money at stake has to do with all the copyrights from the 50s and 60s that are still valid. They were procured and issued under the 1909 Act. And so we have copyrights for the entire Marvel comic book universe. All those character rights could be terminated by the creators if the Supreme Court rules in favor of the Markham estate here and says that there is a right to terminate. Keep in mind that copyrights issued on the 1909 Act exist for 95 years. And so any copyright issued between the years 1927 and 1977 are still in effect and were issued on the 1909 Act and therefore potentially now out of the blue the creators, to the extent that they've assigned away their copyright, will have a right to terminate. And that's a very big deal given the number, the large number of copyrights issued during that 50-year period, 1927 to 1977. I find the ability to recapture the copyright a little bit troubling because so much goes into the success of a board game, let's say, beyond just its creation. There's the marketing. There's the promotion, the packaging, the production, the distribution, a host of things. And for someone to be able to come back after all that's been done and recapture the copyright because they didn't know about the success of the product, so they didn't know about their bargaining position, it seems unfair. And June, you're exactly right. And and it extends beyond just the game of life and what's gone into making it so popular. I mean, think of your typical movie. Yes, you have to acquire the character right, but somebody still has to write the story. The actors have to perform it. The director has to direct it. The editor has to edit it. The sound editor has to bring in the sound. The distribution company has to get out there, market it, and get it in theaters, make it popular. All those things are things that the owner of the copyright and the character did not do to make it famous. And that owner of that character copyright now will have an opportunity to terminate their assignment, which will stop any future movies being made, and to renegotiate the right. And I don't think Congress fully thought through what they were doing here when they put Section 304 in the 1976 Act. They clearly bought hook, line, and sinker all these tales of woe from artists and writers that they were being taken advantage of. And there is some of that that went on, but there was also a lot of just good old honest bargaining that went on. And if the purchasers of those assigned copyrights had known that there was this right to terminate in the future, they would have factored that into their economic analysis and not paid as much in the first place. Or they would have bargained in the first place for the right to give up that termination in the future. And because they didn't know that this termination right existed in 1960, for example, when the copyright Game of Life was assigned, they could not possibly negotiate that way. And so it is, in some respects, very unfair to the owners of these copyright assignments to now go back in time and force a renegotiation. I mean, would this conservative court disturb the Marvel universe in this way? It's a great question. 
June because we are at a nodal point in Supreme Court jurisprudence with respect to copyright law. The two great champions of copyright law at different ends of the spectrum were Justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer. Justice Ginsburg passed away. She believed in a very strong protection for copyrights. We can see how her voice was missed on the court during the Oracle case, which was decided in the last term, in which uh, the side that believed in a weak copyright prevailed because she was not there to articulate the need for a strong copyright system. Justice Breyer, on the other hand, has always been her antagonist with respect to copyright law. He's always argued in favor of a weaker copyright protection system. We saw him prevail in the Oracle case last term. If this case involving um, the game of life were to come up while he was still on the court, I would say that there's a very significant risk that he would overturn or certainly try to overturn and get the votes on the court the lower court decision and say that there was a termination right in these 1909 copyrights. It is likely that this case will not come before the Supreme Court until next October at the earliest. And my understanding is that Justice Breyer is likely to be off the court at that point, in which case we will have a Supreme Court that is truly bereft of any deep knowledge or experience with the copyright laws of the United States. And we will have to see who steps up to fill the spots left vacant by Justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer in the copyright field of the Supreme Court. And it's anybody's guess how this court might rule on this case. I will tell you this, if the Supreme Court agrees to take this case, um, we are going to see a flood of amicus briefs taking one side or the other. Certainly, the uh, owners of, of assignments of 1909 Act copyrights will be arguing to affirm the decision below, and the uh, assignees of 1909 Act copyrights are going to be flooding the courts with amicus briefs arguing uh, that there should be a right of termination. It will arguably be one of the busiest dockets that the Supreme Court has seen in years because of the vested interests and the sheer amount of money at stake. It will be fascinating to see what happens, Terry. Thanks so much. That's intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross of Catton. I'm June Gross when you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. 
It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. After years of public humiliation over sexual abuse allegations that rocked the British royal family, Prince Andrew is sparing himself a courtroom showdown by settling with his accuser. Andrew has consistently denied Virginia Dufresne's claim that he was one of several men to whom Jeffrey Epstein lent her for sexual abuse when she was a teenager. His failure to get the lawsuit dismissed last month set off a cascade of repercussions, leading to Buckingham Palace stripping him of honorific titles and royal patronages. Andrew has agreed to settle the case for an undisclosed sum. Here to tell us more is Bloomberg legal editor Anthony Lynn. Did this settlement come as a surprise to people who are watching the case? I think uh, ultimately not. I do think it was a surprise how early it came. I think a lot of people thought maybe this would get a little closer, a little further. But a lot of people who had been following you know, litigation relating to Jeffrey Epstein did not expect this ultimately go to trial. So ultimately, the fact that it was settled wasn't that surprising. But he'd been taking a sort of scorched earth approach to her claims, indicating he wanted to vindicate his name at trial. Yeah, I think certainly the, the litigation strategy right up until the settlement was pretty aggressive in terms of saying she consented to some aspects of this, you know, that she was out for money. But clearly there was a turning point in the sense of when the judge basically denied his motion to dismiss the case. So he was facing a number of issues. For instance, he would have had to sit for a deposition soon. You know, they were getting this evidence from, for instance, his his former personal assistant. So there were these sort of immediate, you know, obstacles in his path that I guess he wanted to avoid. Did the judge ever rule on his argument that this litigation was covered by a release that Jufri signed as part of a settlement with Epstein? No, the judge never explicitly ruled on that. So that was the the core argument that he put forth in his motion to dismiss, that this 2009 settlement between Jufer and Epstein um, included him. And Jufer's lawyers said that uh, there was was no possible way that he could have been included in that as a a potential defendant. The the agreement said all potential defendants. and the judge basically said it was it was too early to rule on that because there was a um, there was more evidence to be discovered on that basically, and so that that was he he basically reserved judgment on that. It seemed as if this was going to be a he said she said. I mean, essentially, I, I think it's it's um, it, there's no um, there's no dispute that he was um, friendly with Epstein and that he was um, apparently very close friends with. Um, Elaine Maxwell, who was, um, you know, uh, Epstein's former girlfriend, who was just convicted in, in Manhattan of, uh, of sex trafficking. So, um, you know, there, there is a lot of, um, 
you know, he can't deny that he he knew them and that, you know, and that they were involved in this uh, in this scheme. But um, but whether he actually um, abused Virginia Jufre, I mean, they are the only two people, I think, who could say one way or the other. And why wasn't this claim barred by the statute of limitations? Well, there is a, a, um, a law that was passed in New York that um, that extended the time for people who were um, sort of childhood victims of, of sexual abuse to bring claims. And that's actually why Jufre, I think, sued when she did. Um, these claims that she's, she's made them publicly before, um, but... Um, but yes, uh, she specifically references the fact that New York passed this law. I think in the wake of, uh, you know, I think like Harvey Weinstein and some of the other Me Too cases. Do you know why she wasn't called to testify against Maxwell? Well, I, I don't know why specifically. Um, I think there are uh, potentially you could you could see that there might have been issues with uh, uh, some of the, the testimony that other witnesses had brought up. Um, there was one witness who uh, mentioned that Jufre was the one who brought her into Maxwell and Epstein's world, for instance. Um, so, and, and this is something that um, Andrew has alluded to, and, and even more publicly, I guess, Alan Dershowitz, who um, Virginia Jufre is also suing and accusing of similar conduct, though he has denied it, um, has aggressively raised that fact um, in his defense, saying that uh, that this shows that she's culpable in her own way. In the settlement, he admitted to no wrongdoing, but his tone was quite different from what we've heard from him before. Describe his tone. It was conciliatory, I, I, I thought, uh, in the sense of, um, you know, compared especially to the language in his motion to dismiss last October and in the more recent um, answer, formal answer to the to the complaint, which he only had to file after losing on the motion to dismiss, uh, where he specifically said he was going to raise these um, defenses like consent. Uh, he specifically raised the, the legal defense of unclean hands, um, you know, basically suggesting she she was at fault in, in this as well. She's not, you know, a, a blameless person in in, uh, in in her own sexual abuse, which um, you know, it's pretty harsh <laughs> uh, defense to bring up, and and um, in this this latest statement, he is commending her for her bravery, and you know, and, and saying you know how much sympathy he has for for all the victims, and you know, part of the agreement is that he's going to make a substantial donation to her uh, charity, which is uh, uh, it's supposed to support victims' rights. The Telegraph in the UK is reporting that the sum will be more than 12 million British pounds, which is more than he supposedly has. I mean, we've certainly reported that his uh, his net worth, at least I believe it was some years ago, was estimated at uh, five or six million pounds. Um, <laughs> you know, I've certainly seen the British papers have suggested that Buckingham Palace is, is paying for this. So I don't know where that money is coming from. Um, or, in fact, whether that's, that amount is accurate. Okay, thanks, Tony. That's Bloomberg Legal Editor Anthony Lynn. 
Cantor Fitzgerald's former global co-head of equities helped violate SEC rules on recording commissions on trades. That was a jury's verdict after a week-long trial at which Adam Matisich and other traders tried to cast blame on a permissive culture at the firm. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Chris Stolmesh. What was he on trial for? So he was on trial for, it's kind of interesting, he was not, he's not accused of violating rules himself. He's accused of helping the firm avoid SEC rules that, you know, require broker-dealers to provide detailed compensation information so that, you know, customers and regulators, whoever, can identify who's associated with what trades. So was the culture of Cantor on trial as well? Not really. There have been a lot of, you know, um, stories about Cantor over the years and its culture. Um, so that kind of loomed over it a little bit. But this was more of a this was more of a case about, um, you know, compensation. And it's, it's a rare look into, you know, how, you know, Wall Street firms are compensated and how compensation works. And it's just something you don't see a lot. SEC cases, you if they bring criminal charges along with them, they, they go to trial. But rarely do we get SEC cases that go all the way to trial like this. So it was very, you know, revealing about how they pay people and, and what they, how they distribute commissions and things like that. So that was probably the most interesting part about it. Tell us about who the SEC sued initially. So they initially sued uh, Matisich and another trader, Joseph Ludovico, who was one of the sales traders who split commissions with him. Ludovico um, had paid Matisich at least $58,000 in one year. So he was one of the leading people that split these commissions with it. And it was actually his testimony to FINRA that tipped everybody off to this commission splitting scheme that they were doing. He testified at the trial, and he kind of backed up what Matisich had argued, is that this was kind of an open secret that everyone exchanged personal checks on the desk, open. It was not anything that was hidden. Ludovico settled with the SEC. Why didn't Matisic settle? Well, that's a very good question. Um, you know, that would be one of the first questions I would ask him. Um, you know, his lawyers declined to comment after the case, other than to say, you know, that they're considering their their next options, which you know could indicate an appeal. Um, but it's almost a reputational thing. They weren't really. Um, seeking any anything other than a monetary fine and, you know, an injunction blocking him from violating this rule again. But he's not at the firm anymore. So that's kind of – I think this was just more him trying to maintain his reputation and fight the SEC. His lawyers argued that, you know, he was a scapegoat, that he was thrown under the bus for something that was done regularly um, by other traders and other employees at Cantor. What's wrong with this? Well, the problem is, is that – this has been going on since the SEC rule at issue was dated back to 2001. Um, but Cantor traders never really got any guidance on this, and it wasn't really necessarily known. As you know, the years went by, and you know, firms were required to track things more closely, you know, reveal more of their communications. You know, as, as electronics communication kind of makes its way into Wall Street, which it's done over the past 20 years, which these allegations date back to. You know, the more and more they have to comply with these rules, the more and more they start to push out people who allegedly didn't comply with them. So he had other traders testified that this was done routinely at Cantor? Yes, they all said that they – so nobody really said anything to these people about this rule until 2014 when the chief compliance officer, who also testified at, at the trial, um, you know, issued a memo saying you, you can't share – 
um, split, you know, any kind of pay with any other employees at Cantor in connection with official business. So, you know, after that, they got it just kind of stopped. But the traders who got up all said that they thought that that was a new policy. They had not aware that they could not do this before. But there was also some testimony that some of these other arrangements where, you know, commissions were split or something like that um, either went through some sort of approval channels um, or, you know, were, were unofficially condoned by the firm. So what was at issue at trial was something that happened before 2018. In other words, this wasn't ongoing. No, it stopped in 2014, but they, they didn't pick up their probe in 2018. And that's when it, it appears that they, they allowed him to resign. It seems a little odd to bring this to trial. I mean, it, the SEC, like I said, a lot of SEC cases get settled. So, and you know, they don't, the government doesn't tend to give up a lot of times. <laughs> um, and especially the SEC doesn't get a lot of these cases. Look, if these cases, if an SEC case is a fairly um, substantial case, it's probably going to result in criminal charges. We saw that today with another case. So, you know, when the SEC has its own case, they, they fight. And um, uh, Matisic did not give up. He fought the whole way through. This is just civil. Do we know how much he's facing in fines? We don't. That still has to be determined by the judge. And what did Cantor pay in fines? Cantor paid um, $1.25 million to resolve the claims without admitting or denying wrongdoing. Thanks for being on the show, Chris. That's Chris Dolmesh, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.